0: Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast, with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Hello everyone. From everyone at the Canadian Journal of Surgery, I just wanted to extend our best wishes and hope that all of our listeners are doing well during these unprecedented times with COVID. In the interim, we're going to keep on putting out podcasts for you to listen to. In this episode, we interviewed Dr. Neil Perry. Dr. Perry is a trauma surgeon at the University of Western Ontario. And we had a wide-ranging discussion with him, ranging from roboa to pelvic packing to really some high-level concepts such as how to run a trauma. We hope you enjoy. Dr. Perry, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast and taking time out of your very busy schedule. You're flying all over the country, it seems, and going to all different <laughs> meetings and giving talks all over the place. So we really do My appreciate pleasure. Yeah, Yeah, thank, thank you very much. Um, I think we just wanted to start off a little bit by um, asking you a bit about your training, uh, where you did medical school, and how you ended up coming to Western.
2: Sure. So I did medical school at Western. I got in on the uh, second round. It wasn't a first pick, uh, but managed to get in. Then uh, did uh, residency here. Um, I must say when I was thinking about residency, it kind of came down to probably at the time my top ones I was thinking were either Edmonton or or London and it was mainly from uh, Doctor Duff who was our chair at the time and Doctor and, and Girardi, who were who were both here were big uh, um influences um reason why I wanted to stay in London. Did uh, five did general surgery here and then went down to Atlanta to do uh trauma critical care with uh at uh, Grady Memorial through Emory University with uh uh, a great group there, led by uh, Dr. Feliciano and Mosicky, and then uh, back on staff in London for
0: a long time now. It seems since two thousand and three. How How did you pick surgery specifically, Neil? Like, why not? Why not gastroenterology, for example? Yeah,
2: that's a good question. Like, you know, it, it's funny in in clerkship back in you know when we did med school, we really didn't we never got exposed to any surgeons. Um, You didn't do anything clinical, really, until your third year when you started your clerkship. So I actually went into clerkship thinking, like, you know, I kind of like the physiology of the kidney, and I'm just a little kid inside, so I like pediatrics. And um, I thought that's something I was going to do, so I started my clerkship with surgery, and uh, lo and behold, uh, it opened my eyes, and and I just sort of fell in love with it. It was really the, the team aspect and the immediacy of it all. Uh, that really drew me in, and, um, you know, I I kind of mulled around between plastics, ortho, and general, and then uh, as a nice uh, influential clerk that I was, uh, the senior resident I had on the medicine, my medicine rotation, you know, said, listen, you know, if you want to look after sick people, you got to, and you want to do surgery, you got to do general surgery, and uh, that's kind of how it all happened, wasn't a big eureka moment in any way.
0: That's uh, interesting. It it's true for so many of us, hey? Eh? You know, everyone yeah. you, you come in knowing exactly what you're going to no. do. Rarely is that the case. have uh, Having known you for a long time, you uh, know, from the outside and I think we've talked about this a little bit. It, it seems like you're having a ball in life and and that you really <laughs> you you uh you 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 balance so much stuff so so well. Um, we've also talked about, you know, what, what balance means and, and how it's different for different yeah. people. But, you know, you have a great family. I hope you don't mind mentioning, but you have three fantastic kids, a fantastic okay. wife. You clearly have an academic footprint. You're on lots of national, international committees. You come to lots of meetings. We see each other all over the place. Um, how, how, do you, how do you kind of maintain that balance? And, and more importantly, how, how does that interact with kind of how happy you seem as an individual? Yeah, it's a
2: it's a challenge, that's for sure. Uh, you know, as we said before, a lot of some smoke and mirrors uh, <laughs> to make things work. Um, no, I, I, you know, I'm not one really to dwell on on little small things, and I think you know, not to sound too, I don't know, really about it. But with regards, to, I, I, there's no point really dwelling on a lot of negativity. Uh, so I, I try to be positive about most things because I just. I think there's you know putting your energy there is going to be so much more fruitful than than being negative about things and um you know as you said my family has just been you know remarkably supportive uh, as have all my colleagues here at uh in London um to allow me to do these things um and uh, you know I I really do enjoy you know most of these things <laughs> I I like the my committee work you know outside the hospital more than Maybe I shouldn't say that.
0: I take that out now. <laughs>
2: um, but I, uh, no, I enjoy all, all the, the, the committee work, uh, the camaraderie, and, and I really enjoy, you know, always learning from uh, other people and how they how their systems or, or just individual things are are being done, you know, and getting the balance. Again, it, it, it comes back to the, the support that that are that's around you, and just trying to keep things positive.
0: Yeah, that's that's such a good piece of information. I mean, you you guys in the in the trauma and critical care and acute care surgery group in London have such an amazing group. You you've recruited so well, um, you know the the group dynamic, at least from the outside, seems absolutely amazing. We we probably don't thank our partners enough, quite honestly, hey, to mm-hmm. allow us to do a lot of this stuff. And uh, it's amazing to see a group like yours and how you guys leverage off of each other and support each other and and the general uh, morale being so good. It's, it's fantastic. Um, Yeah.
2: You're, I just want to echo that again. You're, you're absolutely right, Chad. Like the, the group that we have, it's worked out very well again, you know, um, holistically and even selfishly, it's made my life so much easier. There's just fantastic people to be, to be around and work with. And, um, you know, it it makes again. It, it it gets. It just makes it positive. It's just that a good vibe, a good energy, um, to be able to, to to allow
0: people to to
2: pursue the what they want to pursue.
0: Yeah, there's there's no doubt. I mean, just to go off on a tangent, maybe that recruiting people is hard. Recruiting great people is mm-hmm. harder. How how did you guys manage to to attract and 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 recruit such great folks that fit so yeah. well?
2: Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. I think we've been you know fortunate that um it's it's been a bit of a you know london always has sort of had this uh, reputation as being a, a hard-ass general surgery place and people get beaten and worked into the ground and that sort of stuff and that's clearly not true yes we work hard and so does everybody everywhere um but there's a really good sense and i think that's come historically from you know from dr duff Gerardi, uh, ken leslie these leaders that have just that that just demand respect and, and responsibility and it, and it comes down to treat everybody equally uh and it just comes down that way so with that that comes down to the residents the residents are, are fairly happy uh, i think again that's you know just my outside look um but uh you know we've been able to uh engage a few residents that uh, really liked you know, the acute care sort of surgery t- uh, side of things and the trauma. have gone out uh, a way to do fellowships at great places and have come back and have added just tremendously to the program. So we've been fortunate to, to be able to recruit them back and, and not get the stolen away somewhere else.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. That's such, such a great group. Um, you, you and I often see each other at, at lots of different events nationally, internationally, and I was wondering what your take on, um, you know, especially for for uh, for trainees, whether it's medical students or more commonly residents and occasionally fellows and junior staff, what what your thoughts are on how you target um, a particular society to join? So what what's important? What do you what do you get out of it? And then similarly, really the same question for for associated conferences, maybe either general surgical or subspecialty wise. What what do you think of all that? If you were to give those folks advice?
2: Yeah, I think that you know early on in our training and then as we move along through our careers they, they change and so early on I think it's you know to be able to um, you know meet other people and and connect uh, uh, to, just to try to, to get some feelers out and, and to, to get a lay of the landscape and really just to learn how these systems work. So. The, the premises of all these, it has to be something that you're really interested in. There's no point in going trying to join a conference because, wow, someone told me this is a great one I should join, but you don't that that subject doesn't interest you. So there has to be that passion there behind it at first. So I think early in the career that's uh, the main reason why, and and then it really as you career develops and you find a clinical uh, or an academic interest, uh, which doesn't have to be just in surgery. It can, to go around from there, um, and then that would really sort of drive where you go. And of course, you know, your own mentors uh, provide great advice as to where to go, and and certainly open doors for us all. That's for sure. I've been very fortunate that way, um, and and I think that's it's almost the same as along with conferences. I think with the societies, that's that's one, and most societies have their own conferences, and then. Um, depending on what your academic bend is or uh, the clinical bend that one has uh, that you either want to join some committees that you think may be able to actually make a difference Um, and because they certainly do they have a lot of these societies and then also if that's where the academic side is that you want to present some of your research or or to partner up and, and link up with other people other groups
0: yeah, it's so true. I mean, it's interesting to have watched a lot of the societies change over the past, I'd say, less than 10 years. There's really becoming a culture of volunteerism um, and solicitation oh, yeah. as opposed yeah. to having to wait until you're, say, mid-career to even walk onto a committee. And that's really become the culture in a lot of different societies. And it's it's interesting. Yeah. I, I, think I think for the that, good, it is interesting.
2: Yeah, I think that there are people are most societies now are, are acknowledging that. You don't have to be... You know, mid end career to be able to get onto this committee or that, that they seek out, uh, uh, you know, younger uh, staff and, and, and rightly so, bright and energetic. That's the, the first thing, of course, but, but also to, because ch- the culture's changed a lot. And yes. it has to. And it, and it has. And it
0: has to be more dynamic and, uh, and diverse. I think you, you see societies, as, as, you, as you point out, change over time, too. I mean, the reality is there's a thousand and one societies. It, it's too many. And, mm-hmm. and there's always someone saying, come to this and join that. But, you know, people speak with their feet. And, and certainly societies become increasingly or decreasingly popular over time for that reason. No doubt. Uh, yeah. that's, that's really great advice.
1: Um, s- I wanted to ask you, Dr. Perry, because we actually at the speaking of conferences, we actually interviewed Kelly Vote at uh, the last CAGS uh, meeting. She talked a lot about you know returning back to this this idea that you guys have such a great group uh, at Western. Um, she talked a lot about how powerful it was as a young staff to come back and have really good mentors. And you know we often ask you know young surgeons uh, they always talk about having good mentors but i kind of wanted to pick your brain like what do you think uh, it it takes to be a good mentor for uh, young and upcoming surgeons and and what are you guys doing that has made that so fruitful
2: that's a good question um you know we don't we do have mentorship committees now in the last probably five six Seven years or so, we've established those. Um, but I think that's more of a uh, something to double check and make sure that people are on the right track. It's not a um, it's, it's a formality. I think the the real mentorship uh, that occurs is is much more on the informal level. Um, and whether you go on to formalize that or not, you know, I, I just think that's maybe just moving the deck chairs. But I, I think that's where it really starts and um you know you you learn you learn from your own mentors right just so much of that is environmental and if there's a a good environment for that and and that's you know you're very thankful of how you've been trained and how things have gone then you tend to you tend to to pay that forward i really do believe that and and so you know with kelly you know she might have been excited to come back but we were ecstatic you know <laughs> the fact that she was coming back to To work with us, so it's pretty easy, you know, to to be a mentor and to help somebody uh, along in their career in, in that path. Um, you know, I don't think there's anything really super specific about it, though. It, yeah,
1: yeah, it's not certainly not, a, not an easy question that uh, uh, I've asked you, and I don't think there's any secret sauce. But uh, kudos to you guys for being. Uh, trying to make that uh, Western such a great place uh, to come and work. Um, Well, thanks. If it's okay um, with you, then I'd like to switch gears uh, a little bit and hit you with some uh, clinical questions because a few of us have a little quiz coming up at the end of the year. Um, I know nothing about that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So here's a a question. and I kind of have a few different layers to it uh, that I'd like to pick your brain about. Um, So, Uh, the scenario is that there's a 40-year-old female brought in by EMS after suffering a head-on collision. She's unstable in the trauma bay, tachycardic, and hypotensive. On primary survey, it's clear that she has a significant blunt pelvic injury. Uh, A binder is applied, and she is resuscitated. And I think the first question I want to ask you about this actually isn't specifically clinical, but, uh, you know, I've seen what the trauma bays are like in Calgary, and uh Unfortunately they're often quite chaotic and uh, you know no matter how much our trauma staff really have tried to have meetings and sit down it, it really seems quite challenging sometimes to maintain a certain sense of order uh, while still uh, keeping some urgency how do you think um, like what sort of tips and tricks do you have for maintaining some control over a, a, a tough situation like that
2: yeah, I mean that that happens with us for sure. I think it happens everywhere. Um there's lots that have been has been written and attempted in order to sort of decrease the mayhem with, you know, stickers, different colored uh, gowns that people wear, different color hats, whatever, uh, perimeter tape where you can't come around. Uh I I don't think I think you have to have one to, s- to step back. You need to have somebody who's a good leader. So the person who's the trauma team leader uh, needs to be able to take control of the situation. Uh, that doesn't have to be the general surgeon or the trauma surgeon If someone's sick like this, I think, should be the one who takes control. Um, and uh, so that that's the first thing, is you need somebody who can do that. And with that, then, yeah, you know, as I tell our residents and fellows and that sort of thing, you know, you, you, be respectful, but we're not there to... You know, to make buddies with everybody down in the trauma bay, you're there to save that patient's life. So, you know, respectfully say, okay, who's not involved? No, you, okay, stand back or get out of the room, please. Um, And then, you know, everybody should have an assigned task. You know, we've recently just gone to the stickers so people will know who people are. So who's the trauma team leader, who's from general surgery, anesthesia, ortho, emerge, that kind of stuff. Um, And I think that helps... Just with communication uh, within that area when it's sometimes chaotic, but it has to be a good leader to, to be able to take control of the situation.
1: That's uh, that's Lead. awesome. Like, is it like I've seen? So you know, obviously, I've worked with Dr. Ball and the trauma surgeons here, and you know, um, everyone's a little bit different. The best. What <laughs> What do you What do you uh, like? Where do you stand? How do you talk? Like, what are you? Someone who wants everyone to to verbalize things, like tell tell me a little bit about how how you actually run a trauma sure so
2: i'd be um right at the end of the bed usually the foot of the bed is where our trauma bays are set up so if uh, as of, you know you're there before the patient gets there um have a little bit of a fill in the team as to you know who what this what we know about the patients and what potential things we may need to do and what things we may need to do very ex- expediently um and then once the patient arrives, usually we get them over onto the stretcher or under the bay, and then get a bit of a handover from our EMS or whoever's there. Um, and then uh, I would ask, you know, someone else, depending on the severity of things, I'd ask someone else to act as the TTL, and I would sort of stand back and sort of just watch how that person does. Uh, if they're doing a great job, perfect. If they need a little help here and there, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll uh, chirp in from the cheap seats. I don't have a problem doing that. Um, and then, uh, I do like it when the person who is doing the, you know, the primary and secondary surveys and that, that does speak. I don't like a lot of people talking in the trauma bay. Um, there always are more than what you like, but so, you know, you have to bring the volume down and just, uh, wait to hear what's going on. Um, but that's generally the way I would, I would run it. I don't tend to get my hands involved, uh, unless somebody else is acting as the trauma team leader. And they need me to do that, or if somebody's you know struggling with something, but uh, generally you'd be sort of at the end of the bed. Gotcha.
1: Okay, so uh, the next question I had related to this scenario is sort of the, the whole question about resuscitation because I think that has really mm. evolved in the last little while. Uh, people are talking about whole yeah. blood, uh, you know, uh, different ratios, and and so what what are your thoughts? What's how do you what's your choice of resuscitation fluid? Uh, And sort of along those lines, uh, do you think Canada is ever going to get to the point logistically where we can give people whole blood?
2: So, um, yeah, I agree. Things have changed a lot from the days when, you know, I was a resident and resuscitated with crystalloid, you know, leaders and leaders. uh, You know, trauma patients are bleeding and bleeding patients need blood. Uh, And they need to give it back in the way that they lost it. So, you know, we do need to have a balanced transfusion. Um, You know, most centers have some type of massive transfusion protocol. Um, Even some smaller centers do. And regionally, they have uh, ability for that. Uh, In Ontario, any small uh, community hospital or even, you know, a very, very small hospital has at least two units uh, on scene. Uh, or at the, uh, at their hospital, so we can use that. Um, we can activate our massive transfusion protocol, uh, before the patient arrives, so we can have blood and, uh, uh, FFP, uh, in the room prior to arrival. So I think that, you know, you want to minimize, I totally, uh, believe that we should, you know, as you know, uh, um, we just need to resuscitate with blood the exact, um, um order of the products again is now is being looked at uh, quite a lot uh, recently and whether we should start with with our plasma uh there's some evidence to suggest that that may be beneficial um uh but I think that's it's really getting into the weeds right now for, for this question but you know a balanced transfusion would be the way to go and get that blood you know ready for when the patient hits the door um with regards to whole blood, yeah I don't know i mean that's that's a just never mind just from the the medical point of view, and I'm not sure if that's exactly what needs to be done um but just the logistic uh political and economic climate um you know with Canadian blood services, I don't know really how that would all play out,
1: okay. That uh, that's a, a, a great overview. I think of uh, how resuscitation has really changed. Um, so let's go back to the that patient that we have in the trauma bay, and let's say she arrests in the trauma bay. And I, I kind of wanted to get a little bit into Roboa. Um, are you someone? <laughs> are you are you guys using Roboa at Western? Uh, and if so, what sort of scenarios uh, are you using Roboa in?
2: Yeah, so we've used it. Uh, I'd say now three times. And uh, we have exclusively just for the hemodynamically unstable pelvic fractures and are deployed in Zone 3. Um, we don't have the uh, the seven French one. We still have the old Coda catheter. We don't have the time one here. Um, so it's a bit of an ordeal. We set this up with our vascular surgeons um, and we keep the kits actually up at the OR desk so someone has to bring them down um, to the trauma bay to get them done. Once we, uh, if we decide that we're going to use RoboA automatically, uh, that books the operating room as what we would have as an A case for an emergent case, uh, vascular surgery, the, uh, fellows is, is paved at the same time. And then he or she comes in and, and you know, we'll do the, uh, RBOA catheter along with, the uh the, the, the general surgeon who's on or the trauma surgeon who's there. Uh and then we get we transfer the patient right up to the OR with the either generally the reboasm the placement emerge uh and then get them right up to the OR. So that we've only done it three times uh, successfully on uh two out of the three, one was an older guy who had a really tortuous and atherosclerotic uh uh, Iliacs, and we just couldn't get the uh, catheter in, so we abandoned it. Um, but he was it was in the OR at this point. So we did not use it a lot.
0: Neil, let, let me ask you, you know, Re, Reboa, um, I guess we've talked about it for a long, long period of time in North America, and some centers are certainly leading the way and really certainly overusing it to try and figure out its true utility. There's, yeah. there's no doubt. But I would argue probably in Canada we're we're a little bit behind uh, in terms of using it, and certainly the the second catheter that you mentioned with the seventh introducer should should help mm-hmm. that what what are your thoughts on who actually deploys it and who manages it? It sounds like you know the, as you said the vascular guys are heavily involved at your site yeah. at, i mean at, at our site here uh, in Calgary the foothills we don 't have va- we don 't have vascular uh, yeah. here at all you know i 've been personally deploying coda balloons and a number of invascular balloons for um ten years probably um you know, sometimes very well and indicated, and maybe sometimes not, but certainly they've been helpful. So what do you think about it in the in the pre-hospital context? You know, you look at London, England, for example, and what they're yeah. doing at the HMS <laughs> pain, to, sure. to us. To, yeah, how, how do you put all that together? You know, I, I don't
2: know. I think, um, you know, that this pendulum has swung still really far for Robola super cool and we should all do it. I think it's going to swing back. Uh, I'll, I'll preface that in a sec there's a, there's a really interesting uh paper that someone had, uh, a friend of mine had forwarded to me it just came out of uh the royal albert in uh in uh, Melbourne, um and looking at they they have a a very very mature uh ECMO program there and so they wanted to look at their their uh, uh the feasibility of doing rebola and they have a really they have an incredible uh Inclusive trauma system in in the state, um, and really basically just go to one of two hospitals, as you know. And you know they they, uh, um, they well that they would see about you know over three thousand trauma patients a year, generally ICS greater than twelve that sort of thing. Um, they thought maybe reboa would be used, and they're looking at the data prior to the study and say seven to ten patients it may have been helpful. So they wanted to implement a team to have twenty four seven deployment of uh, the reboa. They used the Coda. Um, and they said, okay, we'll do it in patients that, whose blood pressure is 70 or less when they present. Uh, and in that, they had, uh, I think, 13 patients or so that came, and, and, only, and none of them had any Reboa, a Reboa depl- deployed successfully. And so the, their conclusion of all this is, one, even with very, try to get a very try-to-get-a-mature team to uh, deploy Reboa, um, they couldn't really get that working as well. And then two, the, the patient population just weren't sure if really that would have helped with any of them. So I thought it was very like a really interesting way to, to look at it. And so I think it's going to swing a little bit around um, as far as how, how it all goes. But but for us, and, and I think for every other center, it has to be local. It has to be local culture and um, from interactions with our, our different uh, specialties, whether you need to have vascular or not, um, with us, we have a great relationship with our vascular surgeons. They're at the same hospital, of course, which makes it much easier. Um, and uh, so we just opened the door and said, you know, this is what we would like to try to do. Mm-hmm. There was a little hesitancy initially, and then we came up with a protocol and, and went forward with it. And there hasn't been any, any issues uh, with it. Although, again, you know, we haven't found the right you know, exactly who the right patient would be that, that requires repo, I don't think either.
1: It kind of goes a, a, along with many new things in surgery where there's a lot yeah. of initial excitement and then it's, it's always much more challenging and in real life when the rubber hits the road to actually figure out where does this get best deployed and, and there's all the practicalities of getting the right team and everything.
2: And it depends on your access to the OR. If you can get to the OR right away, do you really need it or not? if it's delayed a little bit, will that be helpful? So there's all these little nuances which are really, really difficult to tease out. I think there is a rule for it. I just don't know what it is yet. Uh, you know, and my, my bias would be just the patient that you've mentioned with these hemodynamically unstable pelvic fractures. We, in our, in our protocol here in, in London, we would not put it in somebody who's arrested. Now, I know that it's, that's being done a lot um but we didn't feel that we wanted to start with there
1: gotcha um the the last question I wanted to ask you about related to this uh, particular uh, patient and scenario is um uh, a lot of people uh and it, it's particularly some centers in the u s talk a lot about pelvic packing um is that something that y- you find helpful um and uh where do you think that should sort of fit in our algorithm?
2: Yeah, I, I, I do believe it for sure. Um, I, I think, you know, again, you can look at, at, you know, online and you'd be able to find, you know, probably half a dozen, you know, very reputable and and, and evidence-based as best they can uh, algorithms for management of hemodynamically unstable pelvic fractures. So, you know, when there's that many, there's probably not a right way to do it or not. But by my bias is would be certainly... A, someone comes in who's got an unstable pelvic fracture, um, regardless of everything else, you know, it's easier if they've got a positive fast and whatever else, but if they if they just have the, the pelvic fracture, I think they should be resuscitated in the operating room. Um, so we'd get them up to the OR, you know, again, depending on how your relationship is with your orthopedics, your interventionalist, if you have a hybrid suite that you can use or not, that'd be the ideal place for it. Again, our vascular surgeons have that here, and um uh we do use their, their their OR if it's available, uh if they're not currently in it, uh we can use that uh for for these unstable pelvic fractures. The way we would do it is uh would have our orthopedic surgeons come up. Um, you know, as we go to scrub, depending on on who it is, if they've got one of their staff guys that are here, they're they're fantastic and they can get on an X fix in a couple of minutes. As they're doing that, then you know, we would Prep out the abdomen and then uh, I would do pre perineal packing after that. Uh, I like them to do the X fix first because if we pre perineal pack, I'm always, uh, I don't want them to do the X fix afterwards and then we sandwich in and then uh, get some sponges caught in between the bone fragments. Um, and then to see how the patient does. If they they stabilize off from there, then okay. Uh, if not, then we're actually, if we're fortunate to be in the, in the hybrid room, then we shoot an angio. So that's kind of the way we do it. Uh, that'd be my sort of algorithm, uh, or you know, extrapolated from from various others that we would that we would tend to do here. Some of my other partners would do something differently, perhaps. They may go to Andrew more, but first. Uh, but I really think the public packing is, is is very very helpful.
1: Can you just describe briefly uh, your technique for doing that for uh, for yeah. those who haven't so, done much?
2: Sure. So, if there's uh, there's not another indication for laparotomy, then uh, you just do a, a lower midline incision. You know, start a few centimeters below the umbilicus and get down to the symphysis. Um, get down through uh, the fascia uh, without going into the peritoneum. And then uh, once you're in that preperineal space and space of Retzius, there'll be a huge clot that's in there. You'll be able to really just you know, the blood does all the dissection and you can scoop out the clot, being careful not to cut your fingers because that's pretty easy to do. Um, and then I leave the packs, uh, your your laparotomy pads or packs, whichever you want to call them, leave them folded up and you can usually get in three to five or so per side. Uh, and then I would, you know, just uh, stitch up the uh, fascia um, or you can put a vac over whatever. But if you can get the fascia closed, I think it provides a bit more tamponade. Um, and um, and then, uh, you know, bring them back with when their physiology uh, starts to correct a bit more and then to remove them. I've not had to repack twice, interestingly enough, with these. You, generally, you're successful... Within the, just the packing of them once, and you can get the, the packs out, and then uh, be able to close things definitively. If the patient's had a, you, you need to do a laparotomy, then you can truncate your uh, incision to just below the umbilicus, and then leave a bit of a bridge to do a lower midline, or probably what's even easier is to do a Fan and Steel type incision, and in that's in that case, um, and then uh, do the, but do you know, um, be able to do your preparing and packing through it
1: so you do your laparotomy you leave a bit of space so that you can actually still get into that preperitoneal plane
2: yeah gotcha yeah cuz you need to have that you know people will describe doing a full laparotomy and then entering the space of retzius from within the abdomen getting down but you really don't have any uh you, you can't really get a good vector packing that way the same way you can from from coming anteriorly uh, above us you know what i mean yeah so i would i would do two separate incisions if that's what i thought and and also, you know, if someone's got a bad pelvic fracture, if you go straight down through there, then they're just gonna they're gonna bleed out like crazy. We've all done that before, where they bleed a lot from the lower part of their wound because it's coming up to the extra perineal plane.
0: What do you guys do in
2: in uh, uh, in Calgary then?
0: Yeah, it would be similar. Like I mean, we because the the raptor room is kind of always mm-hmm. ready to go. It just depends on their yeah. instability, of the usual thing. Like if we if we're waiting for them to come up or come in. And they're really in trouble. Same exact thing. We'll fix them and pack them and and invite time. Um, Sometimes they're there if it's in the middle of the day, real quick, so you don't need
1: to. But yeah, same thing. Okay. Um, So switching uh, gears once again to a a very different scenario. Um, So. Uh, this time we now have a 25-year-old uh, male with a s- seatbelt injury and a positive fast that is unstable. And for some reason, every CAGS exam I've ever written has this scenario. So that's why I'm bringing it up. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm never sure what to full dis- do. Full, full disclosure, <laughs> I don't
2: write the CAGS exam, <laughs> but I, I do participate in, in, in writing your big exam in, okay. in the uh, spring, all right? <laughs> okay.
1: I know who to blame then. Okay, so... Um, So this 25-year-old has a positive fast, so you take him to the OR and he has, uh, clearly has a duodenal injury, but there also seems Uh to be an injury to the pancreas with uh, pancreatic fluid leaking, and the patient is now stable, uh, has been resuscitated in the OR. Um, So I I thought I'd ask how, how, and uh, it's perfect because we have Dr. Ball on the line as well too, how do you guys approach uh, a possible pancreatic uh, Ductal injury, and um, what, what? How do you delineate that? And then, uh, how do you try to manage it?
2: Yeah, so I guess um, you know, one, the patient's stability, and with, as you know, with with these pancreatic or pancreatic or duodenal injuries, is often major vascular injuries involved as well. So uh, that all depends. But in this scenario here, where patient's stabilized, uh, when you need to be able to identify if there's a duct, if you see you know, a clear transection then and some. You know, pancreatic fluid mixed in with the blood. If you're ever so lucky, then, uh, then uh, that's obvious. I think that when it gets very difficult, is when you're unsure. You know, if and and the, your your eyes and and your fingers are are better than any other test you can do in the operating room. So if the gland is, has a big central area of maceration, or it looks like it's been transected more than 50%, or obviously transected right in half, um, then you go on and, and 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 do your resection depending on where it is. You know, if it's to the uh, left of the uh, mesenteric uh, vessels, then you just go and do distal pancreatectomy, and you know, most likely splenectomy at the same time. You can't do. Splenic preserving if they're super stable and nothing else is going on, but most of the times that's what what we would do. Um, you know, with the uh, duodenal injury, with this type of scenario, it would most likely be a blowout injury, um, and uh, those for the vast majority of those, you can just uh, to bribe back the edges and repair those primarily. Um, I don't think any of these fancy maneuvers of all the different, you know, types of tube drainages, uh, um, exclusion, and all that type of thing is really necessary. Where it gets really, really tricky, uh, obviously, is when it's, you know, right in the head or it's just to the right of of the the mesenteric vessels. Uh, And then that makes it much more challenging. Uh, Again, the principles there would be to to stick with the life-saving maneuvers from the exsanguinating hemorrhage, uh, control that. Um, in, in my in my hands, that's what I would do and then probably drain and then call a friend like Chad Ball and say, hey, dude, <laughs> you know, uh, someone who's got significant expertise in this area where you may have to do a staged whipple down the road. Um, again, if you start out like that, and then it'd be good to hear what, what, what Chad says, but it'd be very, it's a little different when you're also, you know, where Whipples is part of your your everyday life uh, in your elective surgery practice, and, and Chad will, will, will say it for sure, but you know, the group that's probably contributed to this the most in the literature is the South African group and, and, and many of and what, I think three Chad are, are HPV uh, surgeons as well. And, you know, they have the, the sort of the biggest sort of series on, uh, doing traumatic whipples and with, with excellent results, but that's because of who they are and what they do in their
0: everyday trauma or everyday surgical lives.
1: Dr. Ball, do you have anything to, to add to that?
0: Not, not a lot. I think that's beautifully said, uh, uh, Neil, for sure. Um, Neil, I see most clinical things exactly the same way, just based on our training. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I, I I think the overriding take-home principles, whether you're doing in an oral exam or a written exam or you're you're maybe working in a community center and one of these, uh, you know, you're unlucky enough when one of them comes in are, are exactly what, what uh, um, Neil highlighted. So number one, you know, you have to stop the th- immediate threat to that patient's life, which is going to be bleeding. And that can be venous, it can be arterial, it can be a combination of both. So that's that's number one. Number two, I think, as an no overriding principle, is 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 get help the best you can. Now if you're if you're in a small rural Alberta town, that might not be possible except over the phone. Um, but certainly if you have access to, to more experience or or uh just just educated hands. That's that's huge. Uh and number three is d- you know, don't try and do too much. Don't, don't try and do stuff that will change the trajectory mm-hmm. of that patient. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. less is more until, you know, as mm-hmm. South Africans would call it, the pancreatic cavalry, uh, arrive. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the fact that you know, Dr. Perry brought that up. Um, the, the group in Cape Town is it's exactly right. They've, they published really more on this in the last 15 years than anyone else. And, on the HPB side, they're led by Professor uh, Krieg, who's just recently retired, but as he was retiring, did a full PhD in pancreatic injuries. And that's where a lot of those recent papers have come from. And what you see when you when you go there and, and you're friends with those folks is that the interaction between the HPB surgeons and the trauma surgeons is almost like uh, um, nothing I've seen anywhere else in the world. They are very, very close. And, and very tight, and they deal with those injuries together. And um, there's no question that the pancreas surgeon is going to think about it differently than the trauma surgeon, and vice versa. Um, sometimes you need both of those voices to to provide optimal care. Because I think, you know, in terms of, of the, the eventual plan, sometimes the trauma surgeon will undertreat that patient, um, and, you know, and sometimes the, the pancreas surgeon may overtreat them. But that
1: discussion, mm-hmm. is, if it's respectful and knowledgeable, it, is quite amazing to be a part of. Well, on behalf of the other uh, poor souls who have to write their uh, final (laughs) exams this year, uh, I really appreciate that um, discussion, uh, and uh, it was a very good overview of some uh, fairly frequently tested and and real-life scenarios that we might have to deal with.
2: I I think we could also, I think Chad would would agree with this as well, but you'll read some interesting things that are still in textbooks on how to identify ductal injuries you know and, and they're just silly
1: yeah well, that's
2: all i'm gonna say
1: <laughs> exactly there's <a, laughs> the, asthmatics would say the p- printed page can tolerate anything but uh patients yeah that's,
0: <laughs> it's, it, it's very true the, the only thing to that i would add potentially wow. is in, in some penetrating injuries particularly stabs the ultrasound um is a is a beautiful tool and although granted 99 percent of surgeons are not looking at pancreas or pancreatic ductal, uh, ductal anatomy with an ultrasound, it's a pretty simple uh, task, as long as the gland isn't, isn't super beat up. If it is super beat up, don't, don't even waste your time. But it's, a, it's another skill that you know uh, a trauma surgeon, maybe just pop into an HPB surgeon's room once in a while and have them show that to you when they're doing a pancreas case. And it's, uh, it's a skill that can be very helpful in, the, in those weird and wonderful
1: scenarios, like you've described. Fantastic. Um, I, I have one last question for you, Dr. Perry, and that is, um, as someone who's about to enter into the great blue yonder, um, if if you had one piece of advice for trainees that you wish someone had given you um, at at my stage, w- what would that advice have been?
2: <laughs> I think one of my, one of my mentors, when, when I went for my fellowship, uh, he sort of said, uh, hey, Neil, come here. I got a got a piece of advice for you. It's uh, eyes and ears open and mouth shut. You'll be just fine, kid. Uh, and I, you know, it sounds kind of silly, um, but it's true. You got to keep your eyes and ears wide open for everything. Not necessarily the mouth shut part. Um, uh, to go into it, uh, you know, you're just finishing five years of a very tough training. You, you know, you are going to be arguably the most book smart that you ever will be for the rest of your life, just after you write that, just before you write that exam. I'm sure it filters out quickly. Um, But you have to maintain, you know, you'll be, um, you have to maintain uh, and be humble. um, And uh, try, definitely try to uh, find a senior partner where you're working that, uh, you can, uh, talk with, uh, openly, uh, have, you know, established that good relationship. And, and quite frankly, you know, that's, you know, it could be a rate limiting step for where you, you know, someone may d- decide to, to go or not. Um, I think it's really, really important to have that. Uh, we talked about mentoring before and, you know, as, as, you know, more senior surgeons, uh, go along, it, it's, it's, um, I I think it's I think it's you know certainly in my mind I think it's it's our duty to be able to mentor uh younger colleagues and again whether we do this formally informally um is it, it's it's debatable but uh, uh, that's what I would look for if you're just going out into the into the the so-called real world
1: You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs@gmail.com at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.